Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. But his brothers saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judas said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for twenty shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Israel was the last of the famous three great patriarchs in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. His sons, in turn, would become the patriarchs of the famous twelve tribes of Israel. The people of the nation of Israel and all those of Jewish heritage throughout the world would one day descend from this one Jewish patriarch. But before they could, there was a problem. Israel's sons were jealous of one of their brothers, Joseph, and sold him into slavery. After several years and many adventures, Joseph won the trust of Egypt's pharaoh, who made him vizier, making Joseph the second most powerful ruler in Egypt. Then there was a seven-year famine. There was no more food, and Israel and his sons couldn't feed their families. They were about to starve. Because of Joseph's good stewardship, however, there was still plenty of food in Egypt. Israel sent his remaining sons to Egypt to beg for food. They stood before Egypt's great vizier, unbeknownst to them, it was their brother Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery. He was now several years older and dressed in great Egyptian finery. What would Joseph do? Would he hold on to his grudge against his brothers for having sold him into slavery, allowing the line of Israel to die out? Or would he forgive them? We pick up the story, redacted from the book of Genesis. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. 
Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Welcome to Nearestville, episode 34, It's That Simple. In this episode, we're going to take a step aside and try to understand some modern historical drivers as we chart our way through the 21st century. What are the drivers that move history? Of course, there are economic drivers, including external drivers such as droughts and floods, resource drivers, such as over-farming the land or overfishing a fishery. But you can't analyze history without examining the emotions that are driving the decision-makers. So far, the prime emotions we've observed are acquisitiveness, the desire to dominate, that is, to be the alpha leader. There's been some religious sanctimony. We've seen fear of outgroups over and over again, and we've even called this the prime historical driver, and even hate. There are more, but this is good enough for our purposes right now. What's the unifying theme behind all these emotional drivers? That's right. They're all negative emotions. There are certainly many who would argue that acquisitiveness isn't negative. But when it's taken too far, it certainly is. When the Germans needed to expand into Czechoslovakia for Lebensraum, or living room, when Belgium needed to conquer and exploit the Congo as its colony, and when the wealth gap between America's richest and poorer families has more than doubled from 1989 to 2016, according to the Pew Research Center. Yet we continue to pursue national tax and other policies that concentrate ever more wealth into the richest 1% of the population. It's an emotion that has gotten out of hand and deserves the moniker negative. Very slowly, however, we've seen positive emotions begin to act as drivers in our history. At first, the increase in compassion as a historical driver was glacially slow, but it was definitely there, and we watched as human sacrifice fell out of favor, the killing of humans and spectacles like gladiatorial games declined, and torture was outlawed. In the past couple of hundred years, the use of compassion as a driver increased more dramatically. England outlawed slavery in 1807 and animal baiting in 1835. We saw the U.S. fight a bloody civil war in order to stop the horror of slavery in our country. And the beginning of the social work movement began in 1898 with the first social work class at Columbia University. Women were finally allowed the vote in 1820. During the Great Depression, there was the CCC and social relief programs so that unemployed would not have to go homeless and nobody would starve because they didn't have a job. The passage of the Social Security Act 
providing universal retirement to Americans for the first time, and the first welfare benefits for the handicapped and some needy children. President Johnson expanded this to the Great Society, providing much more extensive financial support to poor and struggling Americans. Then there was the Civil Rights Movement, culminating in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the long-overdue recognition by the Supreme Court that the Fourteenth Amendment meant what it said. Finally, separate was inherently unequal. This trend has only increased. In the past several decades, compassion as a historical driver has gone into overdrive. More laws address the plight of the poor, disenfranchised, and the other than has happened previously in the historical record. Okay, you might say. But with our last presidential administration, we saw a strong backlash against immigrants and other minorities. In addition, the increase of homeless people in our streets and the animosity shown primarily by neoconservatives to those of other beliefs belies the idea of an increase in compassion anywhere in America. All right, that's all certainly true, but history is complex. There are multiple drivers going on at any one time. That's why we saw the phenomenon of a strong popular backlash against immigrants, fueled by a late dynastic xenophobia driver, at the same time we were witnessing strong popular support for the Black Lives Matter movement, driven by strong compassion for the plight of African Americans who continued to suffer at the hands of police almost six decades after the Civil Rights Movement. But this isn't an episode about negative historical drivers. Give me a few episodes and we'll get back to that. This is an episode about the positive drivers that are coming more and more into play. It may have been easy to miss the fact that history is being driven by more and more compassionate emotions to a degree that it never was before. World Wars I and II, as well as the Vietnam and Iraq Wars, ongoing excessive force by many police officers, the ultra-rights insurrection at our nation's capital, all these have their own drivers and can mask the many, many laws that comprise our modern social safety net, all of which had compassion for less fortunate Americans as their driving force. The modern rise of compassionate drivers wouldn't be so easily missed if you were to look beyond the U.S. to certain other countries that make no secret of their emphasis on compassion in their countries. It's long been a driving force in the Nordic countries of Denmark, Norway, Finland, and Sweden. These countries value a good health care system in which everyone has good access to health care and very generous social safety nets, so generous that Americans often refer to them as socialist countries, though none of them in fact are. They're just motivated to support the well-being of all who live in their countries. The cost of this universal health care and generous social safety net for the Nordics is higher taxes. That's certainly got to stick in their craw, right? Judging from the reaction that higher taxes draw in this country, don't the Norse rebel against such higher taxes? No. This is the compassionate society they want, and they know the cost. They're willing to pay the higher taxes in order to live free from the fear that someday they will lose their savings due to unexpected massive medical bills and to know that their fellow countrymen will be taken care of should they lose their job or become unemployable. The result of all this? There's something called the World Happiness Index, 
that ranks countries by the reported happiness of their citizens. These results are the result of all three previous years, so the COVID pandemic shouldn't skew the results significantly. The top 10 happiest countries in the world are, in order, Finland, Denmark, Switzerland, Iceland, Norway, the Netherlands, Sweden, Luxembourg, New Zealand, and Australia. Really? The countries with the highest rates of compassion for fellow country members are the happiest? And the U.S., the country that perhaps values the acquisition of wealth more than any other country, continues to give more and more wealth to the wealthiest 1% of its citizens, while watching its middle class shrink year after year, is much further down on the list. The small country of Bhutan, between India and Tibet, didn't crack the top 10 in the World Happiness Index, but the Bhutanese might disagree with that. In July of 2008, the Bhutan government instituted its Gross Happiness Index, in which the Bhutanese are paid one day's wages each year to fill out a three-hour questionnaire to help the government understand the people's happiness and well-being. Bhutan is a relatively poor country, yet it's very serious about this, and measures its success in terms of gross national happiness rather than gross domestic product. Let's pause then to take a look at the emotions that could turn into the positive historical drivers that could change our world. Let's call these the 10 positive drivers. Generosity, empathy and compassion, forgiveness, inclusion, gratitude, happiness, being non-judgmental, peacemaking, humility, and serenity. Okay, they're not all emotions, but let's go with it. So, generosity. The U.S. has always been great at this one. We're just a generous people. By most measures, we consistently rate number one in the world. But we also have more money than most countries. What if you rank us by the numbers of people who volunteer as well? In this case, we fall to number three behind Indonesia and Australia. Number three in the world is still way up there. Keep it up, America. If you haven't donated to a cause, and here political causes don't count, I mean giving to a cause that's going to make someone's life better, or volunteered somewhere, or helped a stranger, then I'd encourage you to do so. It's not simply that you help others. You can't change others without changing yourself. When you make a major change in the life of someone else, you, in return, feel a deep sense of having done something meaningful. It's an emotion you can't explain until you experience it. And the more you change someone's life, the more you understand the importance of this emotion. The more you do so, the more you understand the importance of reaching out and making a positive change in the lives of others. The end result is, when you change others, you change yourself. What I'm talking about doesn't happen when you give money to an organization that does good work to people you never see, or when you stand behind a counter dishing out soup to homeless people who you will never see again. Definitely still give the money. This is crucially important. But beyond that, get involved directly in someone's life. Where? Just keep your eyes open. They're all around. Work in the city? Don't give the panhandler money. 
ask if you can take him or her to lunch. Listen to their story. There's a wall that's erected between the homeless and the rest of us. Break it down and listen to someone's story. Everyone's got a story, especially if they're living on the street. What if you had a devastating story and no one in the world cared about it? Seriously, take someone to lunch. Experience the incredible power of story. Don't work in a city where that's going to happen? Don't worry, just keep your eyes open. Look for the fringe people. They're there. Work in an office, on a construction work site, go to a church, or play on a sports team. The fringe person is the one on the edges that everyone tolerates, but doesn't really interact with much. Sit down, have lunch or a beer with them. Listen to their story. You might not hit it right. They might be kind of fringy, but still have a good support system. If so, what are you out? The price of a beer in an hour? But if you hit it right, if you found the person with no support system, listen to their story. It can be transformational. I could go on and on about giving, but we've got a lot to get through, so let's move on. Empathy and compassion. This one should be the prime historical driver. I looked up the definition of empathy in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and it said, in part, that it means the act of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another. I see so many examples of empathy around me every day. To witness it, just watch the nightly news. The last segment is probably going to be a human interest story. The formula goes like this. Something bad happens to someone. We feel bad for them. They overcome hardship or misfortune, and we feel good for them. We wouldn't enjoy this if we didn't have the capacity to feel compassion. A newscast is 30 minutes. After commercials, it's about 22 minutes. For the news to consistently devote four minutes, that's a little shy of 20% of the news, to make us feel good by playing to our compassion is strong evidence that compassion is alive and well in America. If we need more proof, consider this. In 2019, Americans donated almost $450 billion. That's over $2,000 for every man and woman in this country. And in recent years, this amount has been increasing. And it's not just that we give money. We give our time as well. Approximately 63% of Americans volunteer their time, talents, and energy to causes they feel strongly about. We do this because we care about people and causes. We care about people and causes because we have empathy. And we're volunteering more. Rates of volunteerism hit an all-time high in 2018. Yet one could be excused for thinking that there's a severe shortage of empathy when we turn on the nightly news. If we're conservative and watch Fox, we're assailed with the most recent list of horribles that the liberals are perpetrating on the American people. If we're liberal and watch Rachel Maddow, it's the list of horribles that the conservatives are now up to. It's true. Watching biased news commentators like Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson will make you angrier and more fearful. But it's not true that becoming angry and fearful deprives one of all empathy. The Black Lives Matter protests have been joined by massive numbers of non-blacks because of the empathy the protesters felt for their cause. 
the enormous reaction the death of George Floyd produced was caused because of the overwhelming empathy almost all of us feel for the terrible way he was forced to die at the hands or knee of the police. It's not as evident or well publicized, but many thousands of Christians, many conservative, devote their time volunteering to help the homeless, help a drug addict who's trying to get clean, or many other causes. Very often, these activities are one-on-one and don't make the news, but they're very common. The rise in volunteerism and giving is a result of increasing empathy in our country. As I mentioned in Episode 2, I was surprised to find that, in the Balkan War, the same people could be responsible for both incredible sacrifice and selfless, almost unimaginable cruelty and barbarity. As I've also pointed out elsewhere, fear and empathy are generated at different places in our brains. So we may be able to be angry at those who stole the election and go home and care tenderly for our ailing grandmother or lend a hand to our neighbor. Okay, if Americans have so much empathy, how can we pass so many homeless on the street and not be overcome with our empathy toward them? As I mentioned in episode 21, humans seem to be born with a compassion switch that can be turned on and off. It's not so much that we turn our compassion switch on and off as we become acculturated to things. I had grown up my entire life without seeing a single homeless person living alongside the road. When I saw my first homeless person begging alongside the road in the 1980s, I was overcome with compassion. Now, people pass large communities of homeless in many parts of the country every day without thinking twice. It's like the proverbial frog in the kettle. It's just something we've gotten used to. Forgiveness Forgiveness is something that runs counter to our natural inclination. It's what makes the story of Joseph in Genesis exceptional. His brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of him. You expect him to send them back empty-handed and allow them to perish in the desert. Yet he forgave them. And the great nation of Israel is the result of this one act of forgiveness. You dedicate the best years of your life to your spouse, and you find you've been betrayed. And you're supposed to forgive them? How does that make any sense? Anger, blame, a desire for revenge? These seem to make sense to us. Here's the problem. Such deep betrayal inevitably leads to anger. It also leads to hurt, sadness, depression, and perhaps feelings of inadequacy. All of these are negative emotions. And their effect on us? The effect, of course, is to reduce our quality of life very significantly. It's just part of human psychology. There's only one way to get past this. It's only when we forgive the deep hurts that we can put that hurt behind us and move forward with our lives in a positive way. This is attested to by many testimonials that you can find online showing how forgiveness has not only changed the life of the transgressor, but the one who was betrayed. It's hard. It can be very hard. But that's the point. I've spoken about the strong character that early dynastic populations have, and how late dynastic populations 
tend to lack the strength of character that their early dynastic foremothers and forefathers had. But what is the strength of character I've been talking about? It's a suite of aptitudes people possess that allow them to withstand and overcome psychological difficulties. When faced with the overwhelming shocks that life can sometimes deliver, the death or infidelity of a spouse, for example, some people are able to mourn appropriately and pick up and move on with their lives. Others get stuck in the downward spiral of depression or a self-made prison of anger that they can't break out of. The ability to forgive is one of these aptitudes that go into developing our character. If we are able to develop this, we're able to withstand the betrayals that periodically come into every life. Forgive and move on. If we don't develop the ability to forgive, we become a little more bitter, a little angrier with every such shock. Inclusion. There's been much written recently on the subject of diversity and inclusion. The use of these terms can be traced to the late 1960s, when academics first started debating the concept. Before that, the talk was mostly about desegregation and allowing African Americans into fields that had previously been closed to them. The idea of creating more inclusion slowly gained momentum in the 1970s and on, building to the point where, today, diversity committees are routinely set up in business organizations and colleges and universities to help bring in people from traditional societal groups, such as African Americans, Latinos, religious minorities, and gender-diverse persons. Talk to an HR manager, and you're likely to be told that inclusion and diversity are two of the most highly discussed topics in the human resources realm. It's certainly a huge issue in the field of education. There's now been a considerable amount of research done on the issue. The verdict? Diverse organizations are stronger, more resilient, and more profitable. In one study, diverse management teams earn 38% more revenue. The reason? There's a tendency for groupthink to take over non-diverse groups. Groups that come from different backgrounds bring different thinking into their groups. Such groups routinely come up with more creative and innovative ideas. Who knew? For the past 200,000 years, we feared outgroups. Turns out that embracing outgroups and including them is not only beneficial for them, it's good for the in-groups as well. Gratitude. When was the last time you took a look and counted your blessings? Most of us don't do so very often, but we should always keep this in mind. Our lives are busy. We tend to move so fast. We have a tendency to go from one thing to another. What if we took a few minutes here and there every day to be grateful to those in our lives who love us and to be thankful for the good things in our life? Answer? We'd be healthier and more resilient psychologically. At least that's what the research shows. Other benefits of being more grateful, according to research, include increased empathy for others, lower levels of aggression, better sleep, and improved self-esteem. Life's busy. This is something that doesn't come natural for most of us. We have to become conscious about it if we're going to be more grateful, but the benefits are worth it. Happiness. Seriously? I need to write about this one? Yeah, there are studies on this one, too. 
Here's what they found about happiness. Happier people have up to 25% lower risk of heart disease. The happier you are, the less stress hormone cortisol you have in your bloodstream, making happier people more resilient when facing stressors. Happiness also helps strengthen the immune system. Happy people have a heightened sense of well-being, duh. And if you're happy, you'll live longer. People who score well on happiness indexes have a better chance of living past 85, according to the Harvard Medical School. But how can you be happy? It's not all that hard. I don't think the goal is to be happy so much as to be happier than you are now. Seriously. Just follow the suggestions in this episode. Be more generous, empathetic, compassionate. Forgive those who've hurt you. Be inclusive. Be grateful. Extend your social network. Stop being judgmental. Bring peace to your life and the lives of others. Be humble. Consciously pursue serenity. No doubt about it. If you do these things, you'll be happier, and the benefits we've talked about above will be yours. Being non-judgmental. Yeah, it seems like this one might not be an emotion, but it is. The difference between being judgmental and making a neutral judgment is the feeling of disparaging others that comes along with judgmentalism. This is always featured strongly in the human psychological repertoire since Adam and Eve's day. It's pretty well ingrained in us. It's like anger. We don't have to work at it. It just comes on when the mood strikes us. The roots of being judgmental are based in fear. We don't always feel fearful when we're being judgmental. Sometimes we feel powerful. But most of the time, judgmentalism goes back to the in-group-out-group thing of fearing or disliking those who aren't in our in-groups. But judging is particularly hurtful. There's something in our psychology that really dislikes being judged and reacts strongly when we're being judged. Harsh disapproval from someone we hope will accept us can have a negative effect on our self-esteem. Depending on the power dynamics involved in other circumstances, sometimes this effect can be marked. When we feel the judgment of those in an out-group, the effect is to distance us even more from that particular group and lead us to increased animosity. Has being judgmental increased in popularity in recent decades? Just watch any of the three most-watched TV news personalities. Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, or Rachel Maddow. And see how they judge those who are in their outgroups. Peacemaking. We don't spend enough time focusing on this one. But we're all either a part of or around conflicts. In our relationships, families, at work, extended social networks, etc. A few basic tools can help improve our peacemaking skills significantly. The first is perhaps the easiest to understand, but sometimes the hardest to accomplish. It's simply tone of voice. Nothing serves to escalate a conflict like a harsh tone of voice. So many times, we don't even notice it. But as we become angry, our tone of voice becomes increasingly harsh. This almost inevitably leads to increasingly harsh tones by those we're communicating with, and the anger escalates. If we can be conscious of this and keep our tones calm and peaceful, it can do wonders in keeping difficult discussions productive. If both people in a relationship can agree to always do this when broaching difficult topics, 
It can revolutionize relationships. Communication can also be markedly improved if we understand the communication loop. It works like this. I say something I want to communicate to you. That's my half of the loop. You complete the loop when you acknowledge what I say. You can respond to what I say, nod your head, say, "Mm mm-hmm, or whatever acknowledgement you like. When you do, the loop is completed. If you refuse to acknowledge what I say, it's particularly unsatisfying to me, and I feel ignored and devalued. Watch. Next time you see two people getting into an adversarial disagreement, you'll see them ignoring each other's points more and more. As this happens, tensions rise and resentments flare. These are just two tools, but if you employ them both, you'll find that you're becoming much better at peacemaking. I'm going to just touch on the last two. Humility. Being humble means managing our qualities, whatever they may be, ambition, diligence, perfectionism, or whatever, within a framework of overall modesty and gentleness. Strive to do good work. When you do, allow others to praise you for it rather than proclaiming your accomplishments or boasting. And finally, serenity. If you set these as your values and strive to be generous, empathetic, compassionate, forgiving, inclusive, grateful, happy, non-judgmental, a peacemaker, and humble, you're well on your way to achieving serenity. As a younger man, I lived the American dream. I wanted a bigger car, bigger house, etc. These things were always fun when I got them, but very soon the newness of the car wore off, and I wanted the next thing. I found what all Americans who are stuck on the acquisitiveness treadmill sooner or later discover. More is never enough. These days, I've discovered what I think Lao Tzu would have told me if I had consulted him back then. Acquisitiveness is fun temporarily, but serenity brings lasting satisfaction. There's sometimes the feeling that hard work and serenity are opposites. This isn't so. It's possible to work just as hard once you've achieved your sense of peace. The difference? Your life will be much more satisfying to you. Far beyond that, you'll find that others will find you much more attractive as well. There's a nervous restlessness that accompanies the constant desire to acquire. It's not attractive. We look up to those who've been able to find peace in their lives. They can help show us the way to peace ourselves. Perhaps this has sounded like a self-help podcast today. And that's certainly true. If you adopt these steps into your life, you'll definitely be happier and find more satisfaction with your life. But this is a history podcast. So what's my point? We've been talking about historical drivers and what directs the course of history in one direction or another. In doing so, we've noted that one of the historical drivers you need in order to understand the historical trends is the emotions and motives of the historical movers and shakers. Before the Third Punic War, in which Rome sacked and completely destroyed Carthage, revenge was the overwhelming motivation driving the Roman Senate. The famous senator, Cato the Elder, 
was so enraged that he ended every speech with, Carthage must die. There are dynasties that are driven by the acquisition of people and territory. Many fall in this category, but the Mongols win the prize for the largest dynasty ever, at least before the British Empire of the 19th century. But there are other drivers that motivate dynastic decision-makers. In addition to acquisitiveness, we listed other negative emotional drivers that can influence leaders. The desire to dominate, that is, to become the alpha leader, religious sanctimony, fear of outgroups, and hate. None of these benefit humanity as a whole. My point in this episode is, what if a substantial number of people in our country were to adopt a majority of the 10 positive drivers we've discussed today? During the coronavirus pandemic, we heard over and over again that everything would change when we reached herd immunity. Viruses, whether they come in outbreaks, epidemics, or pandemics, are systems. As with every complex system, some of their workings are incredibly complex, and some, on a macro scale, are very simple. The simple thing about herd immunity is that once you reach a certain level of immunity within the population, the virus can no longer spread from one person to another in sufficient numbers to continue to go on replicating itself. So it is with historical drivers such as we've been talking about today. If a few people adopt them, the lives of those few people will improve along with those in their immediate in-group. Just as if a few people get vaccinated, those few people may gain immunity and those in their family may benefit as well. But nothing significant happens on a system-wide basis. The magic happens when a sufficient number of people get immunized and become immune so that the virus can no longer sustain itself by jumping from one person to another. That is, herd immunity. This is what happens with all of the various dimensions that make up the character of a nation as well. Early on in a dynasty, people have often been through hardships and are devoted to their country, work hard, and produce more for their country than they take in return. There are, inevitably, differences of opinion in the country, but the people's commitment to the country is more important than their commitment to whatever their particular cause is. In the vocabulary we've been using, their prime driver is their country, not their cause. What if, in our country, a significant number of people were to adopt the character traits of generosity, empathy and compassion, forgiveness, inclusion, gratitude, happiness, being non-judgmental, peacemaking, humility, and serenity? What if we did this in sufficient numbers as to reach the equivalent of herd immunity? We'd see a very different historical emergence than we have in the past few years. It's that simple. Our read this week is Left to Tell by Immaculate Ilabagesa. She was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide in the 1990s. Her family was murdered in a massacre. Her story is horrendous, yet Immaculate chose to forgive the people behind the death of her family and who caused her so much hardship. I not only recommend that everyone read her book, I recommend we all try to emulate her outstanding character and ability to forgive. Enjoy. See you next week.